All right. Please take your Bibles and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. That's just going to be our launching place because it talks about the importance of Scripture. In fact, when we speak of Scripture, we don't speak of just the New Testament Scripture. We speak of the Old Testament as well. Amen. In our Romans 16, Paul says the things that were written before in the Old Testament times he's speaking of were written to give us hope. And that's after he quotes a prophecy in Psalm 69 that points to Jesus. And we read about that, uh, what was written in Romans chapter 4. It was not just written for Abraham. It was written, actually, it was after Abraham was there. It was written for us. And in 1 Corinthians 7, we're told that God had these things written down for us so we wouldn't fall as examples, so we wouldn't fall in the same way they did. And, and here we read in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, and this is, you know, uh, important to understand a little bit of the context here. He has, uh, he's excited about, you know, he's just encouraging them to persevere in the faith, and he tells Timothy that from his childhood he's known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. And that childhood there would have been when he learned about God's word, from the Jewish scriptures, amen? So they're called scriptures. And uh, so uh, we, we have the writing of the scriptures, and Paul recognizes, obviously, even by the time Timothy's written, Jesus' teachings that are codified in Matthew and Mark, probably by that time, because he quotes Jesus in Timothy. Uh, he says it, it is written, and he quotes Jesus, where he says a worker is worthy of his wages. Isn't that interesting? Validifying that Paul, that those scriptures were already written. It's pretty cool. Uh, and then Paul, uh, P- Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 3, uh, talks about how the unlearned and the, the, the corrupt teachers, how they twist Paul's teachings, right, regarding his grace, his patience with the wicked and so forth. And he says, as they do the other scriptures. So in, in, in biblical, in the first century, when you heard the term scriptures, especially early on, you know, after Jesus was risen, uh, you, would, you would think of the Old Testament until the New Testament writings started getting written. Amen. And as believers, in fact, I'm going to do a study, hopefully not too far out, is, you know, how are we to relate to the Old Testament as believers, you know? Because there's a lot of confusion. Some want to take you under the law of Moses, which we're not under anymore, amen? Others want to just say, well, we're New Testament Christians, they only pay attention to the Old Testament, and there's treasures there that God expects us to learn from, treasures of his truth, amen? amen. Things by way of application that relate to us uh, through just righteous uh, truth that's paralleled in the New Testament uh, as well. But as we talk about the scriptures, Paul goes on to say in verse 16, all scriptures inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So all of scripture is inspired by God, amen? God breathed, right? Theonoustos. And it's interesting that in 2 Peter, or first, yeah, 2 Peter chapter 1, talks about holy men of God were moved by the Holy Spirit as they wrote Scripture. And of course, anybody can call something Scripture, but God's proven himself over and over again through his word, amen, through the prophetic witness and what have you. Now, this study that we're going to have uh, this evening is going to be a bit deep, okay? And it's going to be polemical to a degree. It's going to be hopefully to encourage you in regard to apologetics. You are here after all on a... uh, Wednesday evening, okay? So Sunday, 
we get into it as well, but you're going to have to really, you know, think this through, and, and I'm going to try not to go too fast. The, the burden I have right now is that I have about 20 pages of notes, I think 19, 20 pages of notes, and, and, I, can't, and I can't digress too much. I've got to be stick with my notes to get done on time, and I can't go too fast either because there's some deeper things, but they're, they're not too deep. I mean, we, you know, we can understand them, and don't want you to be intimidated because uh, you can always get the CD if you miss certain things, but, and, I'll, and I'll repeat a few things here and there. I do that as that's what teachers ought to do, so you, you catch on in case you miss something. You might have, oh yeah, I already heard that, but the person next to you like, oh, now it makes sense. So I try not to repeat things too much, but uh, it's important for us to understand, and what I want to talk to you about is uh, the attack that takes place upon your faith and upon the scriptures by liberal theologians, uh, by skeptics, by Bible revisionists, by pagans, by uh, the zeitgeist style uh, crowd who wants to claim that Christianity and Judaism and Judea- Christianity is related to Judaism, the fulfillment of the law. But they want to say, well, you know, they're, they're not unique. And, you know, for centuries and centuries and centuries, uh, scholars would say Christianity was so unique compared to what was all around them, you know. And more and more recent history, it's been said, last century and a half or so, oh, well, Christian, you know, Judaism, the, the Bible borrows from a lot of the myths that are around the Ain uh, world. Ain is uh, ancient, new, uh, ancient Near East, okay. Ancient Near East would be those territories around the land of Israel. That surrounded, they were surrounded by Mesopotamia, you know, Babylon, uh, Egypt, and so forth. And, oh, they, they borrowed heavily because you could look at some of the stories, and there's similar stories uh, with sometimes uh, surprising similarities in those communities. And it's debated as to, you know, which writings were written first, you know. Uh, uh, I believe Moses was written, or the first five books were written by Moses 3,500 years ago. I don't doubt that. Uh, there's a great, great book and a great video that goes along with it called Patterns of Evidence, which uh, I'll mention a little bit later. Uh, which, by the, I think the first person to turn me on that was Jevin, you know, and, uh, and it was, it's, it's, a, it's, it's, we got to probably show that here, you know, it's really amazing because it, and a lot of the guy, one of the gentlemen that's interviewed isn't even a Christian, but he's like, the evidence shows it happened 3,500 years ago, not when scholars want to put it a few centuries later. And there's really cool evidence there. Uh, I'll be referring to a few different books here for further study that you might want to do because I find this, this uh, subject incredibly fascinating. And what's interesting, the more you look at this, and I love it because every time you, it seems like every time there's a, a struggle, it's like, Lord, what did you mean there? And somebody sees upon it, a non-believer, what have you, and the more a type or a, a, a thing that looks like, what's the Lord doing? Like Abraham offering up Isaac ends up being the most beautiful story besides the crucifixion, Amen because it was a picture of the crucifixion. Then you, go, you have those wow moments. And this is one of those things, the more you look at what they're saying, and then the more you look at what God's doing, it's the wow moment. When you look at this whole thing about, well, what's happening is the, borrow, the Bible is borrowing from, you know, the Epic of Gilgamesh, you know? Or it's, it's, it's borrowing from this, and it's, it's borrowing from that, and, and so forth. And there are similarities, uh, but there ought to be similarities. If there was a creation there should be some similarities in people recounting what happened, amen? If there was a worldwide flood, you think there'd be similarities, especially when all kinds of people have the, around the globe have the same story, or a, not the same exact story, but a story, right? And it's just interesting that it's only when you turn to the Bible that you don't see all these mythologies mixed in. Isn't that interesting? You don't see all these weird things happening and all this, you know, strange things going on. So I want to talk about this because uh, those who are, you know, 
a lot of the new agers and others, they look at, well, it's multiple choice, you know. Basically, the, Christianity and Judaism aren't unique. It's just, you know, basically they, they, they shared each other's stories and you could just pick A, B, or C, uh, multiple choice, and the, all these stories, all these ways will get you, you know, by spiritually or get you into heaven or nirvana or whatever they want to say. But it's interesting because a lot of even evangelical scholars, you know, will emphasize sometimes the parallels between some of the old story of creation, story of the flood. And they'll emphasize the parallels, but, and they'll forget or they'll neglect to emphasize uh, the fundamental and foundational distinctions that are huge in the stories where they differ, you see. <clears throat> and I think that's important to keep in mind. Now, it's true that there's many cultures that have stories of creation and there's story, uh, stories of the deluge, right? Yeah, and we should, as I said, we should expect that. But, uh, and we're going to start looking at uh, some of these things and co start comparing them and start looking at some of the similarities, but also uh, some of the uh, vast differences. And then what's interesting, though, and this is what's kind of surprising, is why does the Lord use some of the same language they use? Because you'll see language that's used that you'll be able to pick up in the Ain, A-N-E, A-N-E, ancient Near Eastern world. You'll see some of the language that's very similar that's used in the Bible. And why is the Lord God using this language? Well, it's for a very interesting reason, and I love it. It's, it's actually really, really powerful because you have to realize there's a spiritual war and that these stories that were carried on about early creation, these stories that were carried on with regard to the flood, they were associated with the worship of all kinds of demon gods and false gods and the practice of magic and everything else. So what you have to do is you have to understand, just like Dan Brown, right, the New Age crowd, they want to hijack Jesus, make him someone different than he is. That was already going on. The creation account was already being hijacked by the demonic world, okay? The flood account was already being twisted by the world of the false gods, the pagan gods. So when you understand that there's a spiritual war, and then when you understand that spiritual war, you also begin to understand why there is what we call uh, a polemic theology. And polemic theology, and please try to understand this, is a polemic is like to make an argument against, right? Polemic theology is that the Lord God had Genesis, Exodus, you know, these books written not just to recount history, but to basically trash talk the false gods and, show, and to show you that there's no hope in them. And that was one good form of trash talking because if you put your trust in those false gods, you die in your sins, you're in huge trouble, right? So God used the language and used a lot of the parallels, but, in, but, but re revealed the truth. So there can be different accounts. Several people could witness this talk this evening. And several people could communicate this talk. Let's say for some reason you did the next day or weeks later or a year later you thought about it. It doesn't mean the one who mentioned it a year later is less accurate than the one who mentioned it three months later. See what I'm saying? So what happens is... And I believe personally, I believe there are oral accounts of the creation that were handed down. I believe there were oral accounts after the, in the days of Noah, after they survived the flood, that were, and the world spread out. There were oral accounts, obviously, and they got twisted. Because you'll find some fascinating, as far as off as China, you'll find, you know, in, in the Americas, you'll find stories of the flood, which are quite interesting. But the world began, the creation began in Mesopotamia area, in 
ancient Babylon, that area of the world where Israel is, the Near East. And it's interesting that you have these things, but there's a, this, uh, the God uses, and this is what I think is important, the way this is written, this is what blows me away. Try to understand this. He doesn't just record the true account. And what, what's written down isn't the oral tradition. Moses received the first five books at Mount Sinai by way of revelation, even though there was oral tradition, and he probably understood to one degree or another the oral tradition, but then revelation that contradicted probably all the oral traditions, and all the oral traditions were probably uh, distorted or corrupted to one degree or another. And then he wrote it in such a way that it was polemical. That's what blows me away, is that God is writing in such a way to ridicule, to repudiate uh, the false gods, the, the demon gods. So I think this is important to get this point. In fact, in Exodus chapter 20, uh, you can go there if you want. It says, then God spoke these words saying, verse 1, and now verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have what? No other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven, above, on the earth beneath, or in the water under the earth. Now that's like revolutionary thinking when that was written. Because the God of the Bible, while there's some similarities in stories at times, there's fundamental and foundational truths that are in huge contrast to the pagan stories. Are you with me? And one is monotheism, that there's one God, not many gods. Okay? The pagans had many, many gods. They were all into not either, either pantheism or panantheism. Pantheism is everything is God, panantheism which sounds similar, but it's P-A-N-E-N instead of P-A-N-T-H. It speaks of God being in everything. And so even though they might have a chief God over the other gods, you could even worship the other gods. And it's far different than the one true God who says don't worship other gods. And they are, they are demon gods, as he says in Deuteronomy. He says in the book of Psalms, says in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10 and elsewhere. They're, they're either idols that represent demon gods, so you're worshiping something that can't even walk, an, uh, an idol, or you're worshiping the spirit that works through it. Now, polemic theology recognizes that the Lord made uh, use of the stories that were going around, which were uh, not amnesic because people had some tracing of what happened, but he filled in the blanks, right? Now, it's interesting. There's, there's what I call sympathetic polemics, Okay. And I don't know if that's been used before, but I look at it as sympathetic polemics. And that's where we use something in somebody's culture and we see that there's something in their culture that's a remnant of the witness of God from the past. In Isaiah 14, it says God has not left himself without a witness, amen. In Romans chapter 1, it says God's creation, you know, speaks of God's glory and his, his eternal attributes and his divine power. And Psalm 19 says that the heavens, you know, utter his voice, right? So missionaries use all kinds of... Uh, cultural expressions. They find cultural motifs in, woven throughout various cultures that are remnants of the witness of God. And I think this is important to understand. Uh, it, there's a book called Eternity in Their Hearts. And this was written by a guy named Don Richardson. I saw him speak before, and he was a missionary. And it's called, the, the book is, and it's, it's a fascinating book if you want to get it. Eternity in Their Hearts, Startling Evidence of Belief in the One True God in Hundreds of cultures throughout the world and it's just interesting that you go to different cultures you're like wow how do they know that you know and it's because uh 
there was oral tradition handed down that got distorted, but there was some truth. And also keep in mind in Romans chapter 2, what does the Bible say is written in our hearts? God's what? Not just the Jews, it's written in everybody's hearts, right? His law. So obviously, even the way people worship would reflect the truth to a degree, but be distorted because in Romans 1, it says they worshiped idols and God gave them over to idolatry. Amen? And he gave them over to depraved minds. So there was a distortion in their worship. Are you still with me? John, uh, John Currid, a professor and scholar of the Old Testament, I think he's retired now as far as being a professor, but an expert on the Ain world, ancient Near Eastern world, and also an archaeologist, which I think is interesting. Uh, he wrote an interesting book called Against the Gods, The Polemical Theology of the Old Testament. On page 25, listen to what he writes. The biblical authors take well-known expressions and motifs from the ancient Near Eastern Malu and apply them to the person and work of Yahweh and not to the other gods of the ancient world. Polemical theology rejects any encroachment of these gods into orthodox belief. There is an absolute intolerance of polytheism, meaning the belief in many gods which those cultures held. Polemical theology is, mon is monotheistic to the very core, end quote. So it's totally different. The, the Jewish faith, the, the faith that God revealed to, uh, uh, to uh, first to Abraham, of course, Isaac, Jacob, and eventually uh, to Moses. Now, I think it's interesting. Uh, now, Currid argues persuasively, and that's an interesting book if you want to get it, okay? Uh, his, his book I just mentioned uh, called uh, Against the Gods and how basically the scripture is written against the false gods. How many were there in that study I gave about three months ago or so on all the false gods of Egypt and how each judgment, uh, each of the 10 plagues was what? A judgment on the what? On the, on the gods of Egypt. Remember that? Okay. That's, that's what he's talking about here. Same deal. Uh, he, he interestingly enough says, uh, he, he, he argues persuasively, and, but he reveals that there wasn't strict borrowing going on. But there was usage of their phrases and things like that for a purpose. And he states, uh, quote, Polemic theology is the use of biblical writers of the thought forms and stories that were common in the ancient Near Eastern culture. Because that was the, I understood these things happened. There was a flood. There was a creation. And he says, while filling them with radically new meaning. So the pagans, just like if you go on a mission trip, right? You're like, wow, they actually believe that God sent his son to he promised to send his son, and he chose a guy, you know, uh, in, in, Meso in Mesopotamia. But they don't, know, they don't know, his name's not Abraham, right? They call him Frank or whatever. And, you know, and through his lineage, you know, there was a Messiah that was born. And he, and he was born in Japan, and now he's sent to the world. You say, hmm, you have an interesting someone. Somehow you got that story, but you don't got it right, right? Let us set it right, amen? So it's interesting so let's talk about the creation account, okay? When we examine the popular creation accounts of Mesopotamia, uh, Babylon, and so forth, uh, we see there's some similarities. Uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh, uh, you know, you have one story where a guy is actually warned that there's a flood coming, and he needs to build a ship, and he needs to get on it, and he needs to get the animals on it, and the flood comes and destroys humanity. Sound familiar? That's outside the Bible, too. Oh, well, did the Bible take? Well, guess what? God knew that. God's the one that did it. Amen? And people are going to hand it down through oral tradition. Amen? But 
the dissimilarities, both foundational and fundamental, are what really counts here because there's a difference, huge differences in the stories that people don't pay attention to. There's ends and other uh, Walton. There's other like, you know, guys that have gotten ahead of, you know, non-believers and then even some believers saying, oh, look, there's parallel accounts here. That must mean the Bible borrowed heavily from these things and so forth. No, <laughs> sometimes they had some things right, but God's word gives us the true accounts and sets them straight. And we'll get into that a little bit. For instance, consider, consider the story of uh, uh, Enuma Elish, Okay. Enuma Elish is, uh, is one of many creation accounts in Mesopotamia. By the way, they had a lot of accounts, okay? So if you have a bunch of different accounts, of course there's going to be some similarities, right? But, uh, but in that account, there's so much dissimilarity. And this is a huge, huge story uh, in, out of coming out of Mesopotamia and Babylon because it has to do with two gods, okay? Atsu and Tiamat. And, uh, Tiamat. and Atsu... And Tiamat are two gods that create everything through having sexual relations with one another. And after they have sex with one another, they bring forth Marduk, as some call him, or Marduk. Isn't that interesting? So what's interesting is you have this sexual... Does that sound like the biblical creation at all, by the way? No. And they have uh, theogamy, which is the gods are birthed through their sexual relations, all these different gods that are, people are worshiping, allowed to worship. And Marduk is simply one of these gods that's born through their sexual relations. And guess what? He wants to become the chief god. So he goes to battle with, uh, he goes to battle with not Atsu, but the female, you know, Tiamat, who represents, by the way, or is, is basically the waters of the primordial world, you know, but there, she's a god. And her relations with Atsu brought forth these different gods, including Marduk. And Marduk uh, wants to defeat her and defeat the gods of chaos. And, and he goes to battle with her and he has in his mouth a spell to defeat her. Magic. Okay, these things are so foreign to the Bible. Magic is forbidden by the Bible. See? And in his hand, he has an herb to counter her poison. Okay, she uses her poison on him. And then he takes the four winds away from her so she can't hide in any of the four winds. And then he uses the four winds and 70 or so new winds that he creates of vengeance. And he blows her up with the winds like a big puffer fish. And then he shoots an arrow into her belly and she explodes. And out of her explosion and her death and her rotting corpse comes forth humanity. Does that sound like the creation account? No, not even that. Okay. But these are the things they say, oh, look, the Bible took from this. And it's like, really? And then you'll say, oh, but there's some similarities here and there. Yeah. Because guess what? There's a kernel of truth in every lie, right? And sometimes there's a lot of truth in a lie. Sometimes the most effective uh, lies have, have mostly some truth in them. Amen? So it's just interesting when you look at these, these stories. Uh, and by the way, this creation story, and by the way, Marduk is a chief, became the chief god of the Mesopotamian Babylonian, of a Babylon. But guess what? Marduk wasn't even the first one on the scene. 
Amen? He's not the creator of everything, right? He himself was brought forth and created. Are you with me? And these are things you need to know. You know why? Because you don't have to know them, but when you're street witnessing, there's people that will study these ancient tales and they'll say, hey, look at the parallels. And guess what? You can have an answer. That's part of my job as a pastor is to help equip you. So you're ready with answers and you understand these things. Amen? Amen. We want to get beyond and we want, praise God for Jesus loves me this I know for the Bible tells me. So that's awesome. Amen? We want to go beyond that too into the deeper water. You know? And you know what happens when I give a message like this? Almost invariably, somebody texts me or they tell me or I see them later and they're like, can't believe the next day right after that message. I was thinking, I'm, will I ever use this? Well, whether you use it or not, you need to know it. Amen? You need to know your, the word. Amen? And understand why certain things are written certain ways too. So you can appreciate this word. But, but it's also great to get people, help people get out of prison. And I mean the spiritual prison that they are in because they have been taught, have a seen a zeitgeist film or seen, read, read some liberal, you know, a theologian. Amen. But the differences are huge. There's theogamy, sex to bring forth gods. That's not biblical. There's, uh, the, there's not only that, there's uh, elements of magic in this story, obviously, potions and things of that nature. Okay. And by the way, isn't it interesting, the polemic, the creation account is written. So God says, no, this is how it happened. This is how I did it. And by the way, it's so profound. Just Genesis 1, I think, and this is when we were having four shows a day, right? COVID hit and everything, and we slowed down a bit. We started doing our shows a little bit differently. We kept doing them, though, and uh, doing interviews, and now one hour instead of half-hour shows and so forth. So I wasn't, so when that was uh, going down, when we were going through Genesis, we were going through types, and I had the time to go through it. I'm going to still be teaching on types and working on a type. Pretty soon it's coming up. I've been working on really beautiful typology. But uh, I should go through Genesis the first, not even, I think we're through maybe the first half of the first chapter. And we spent several weeks on typology showing these are the way God in his original creation. We haven't got to Adam and Eve yet. A picture of Christ and his bride, right? That this is all a profound picture. So it's so, it's so layered. It's so, so profound. But you have, you have magic. You have theogamy. You have polytheism, you know? And the Bible teaches monotheism. And the Bible condemns the worship of Marduk. And there's polemics used in the prophets. Not just the way it's written in the Old Testament against those creation stories. But Jeremiah 52, Babylon, he talks about Babylon's destruction, Jeremiah, and the people, his people are going to go into Babylon. And they needed to understand that Babylon was not going to rule the world forever, that judgment was coming on Babylon where they were being, where they were uh, in captivity for judgment for a period of time, right? Under Nebuchadnezzar. Well, listen to this, Babylon will be captured. Bel, and by the way, it says Bel will be put to shame. Marduk filled with terror. And sometimes he's called one of his popular names, so not just Marduk or Marduk, depends on how you want to translate it uh, or, or say it, uh, was Bel Marduk, okay? Or ba- Bel Marduk. Uh, Marduk it was filled with terror. Her images will be, and now it's talking about Babylon, her images will be put to shame and her idols filled with terror. Isaiah chapter 46, verse 1, talking about Marduk. Listen to this. But under the name Bel, another name for Marduk, verse 1. Bel and Nebo, the gods of Babylon. Bow as they are lowered to the ground. They are being hauled away on ox carts. The poor beasts stagger under their weight. It's pretty funny. They're saying they're making idols of these gods, right? And so forth. Matthew Hudson, uh, in his Creation Theology in Isaiah 40 through, 40 or through 66, an expression of confidence in the sovereignty of God, points out that uh, Isaiah, the prophet, his writings were written in part uh, 
to encourage the, Babylon, the, the believers that would still be in bondage in Babylon against the false worship of the Babylonian gods that surrounded them. So they wouldn't leave Yahweh. And I'm giving you this information because I'm going, I'm, we're looking at Genesis, Exodus, but I'm also looking at in light of the prophets that there's this polemic against these false gods. And he writes this, I think it's interesting. They were surrounded with Babylonian theology and taught Marduk and taught that Marduk created the world with the advice of his counsel. So now, all of a sudden, it shifts to Marduk as the chief god because he kills Tiamat, right? Blows her up like a puffer fish with the four winds and, and shoots an arrow into her belly and pops and there creation comes forth. So through him killing her, now there's more creation of humanity, right? That's how humanity is created. But he's not the first god on the scene. And... So he, he writes, they were surrounded with Babylonian theology that taught Marduk created the world with the advice of his council. So in Babylonian theology, Marduk is one of many gods, but he had a council of gods that counseled him on how to create the world. The prophet directly attacked this myth by asserting creation came from the royal council of Yahweh, where he stands as the head. Furthermore, unlike Marduk, he did not need advice on how to form the universe, like from his council, right? In Israel's view... In Israel's view, the members of the heavenly council uh, were there to praise Yahweh and serve as his messengers. No one was qualified to fill the position of advisor. With one stroke, the prophet mocked the incompetence of the Babylonian gods and asserted the omnipotence of Israel's God. Now, when you read Isaiah, you keep that in mind. And then you understand why you read words like this. Isaiah chapter 44, verse 24. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all these things, who alone, not with his counsel, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. Do you understand? That's just, you know, a few verses before what I just read about Bel, right? And Marduk, you know, not that Marduk's going to bow down to the one true creator who made everything. Amen. And that's why we read in Isaiah 43, 10, a couple chapters before this. You are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know me and believe me, that before me there was no God formed, neither how shall I be what? After me. There was no Tiamat before God, right? You know what I'm saying? There was no sexual relations that brought forth Yahweh. The name of this message is Yahweh versus the pagan gods. How many of you like these kinds of messages? Oh, I do. I, do. I love God's truth. And we need to understand what's going on here. Isaiah chapter 45, right? Just a little bit before what I read, verse 5 and 6. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I will gird you through, though you have not known me, uh, that man may know from the rising and the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I'm the one true God. There's all these polytheistic gods and advisors, and I create everything by myself. I'm different than them. So when I say, oh, the creation account, oh, the flood story, he's like, wait a minute, man. <laughs> the God of the Bible actually interacts with those false gods and reveals that he created the universe. And there's one true God. By the way, Marduk is called, is credited with uh, creating the zodiac and the stars to be worshipped. So you can worship the stars, you could worship the animals, you could worship all these different things. In fact, this is from the seven tablets of creation. Fifth tablet translated by L.W. King, London, Luzak, uh, in 1902. Just a tablet that is uh, praising Marduk. And it says, he, speaking of Marduk, made the stations of the great gods, the stars, their images, as the stars of the zodiac he fixed. So it emphasizes astrology. Marduk pushed astrology. 
These are the demon guys trying to get people to not to worship the one true God. That's what the Tower of Babel was about, folks. Everybody coming together, the new world order, you know, we're trying to do that again right in this world. They're going to do it for a little bit under the Antichrist, okay, because this stuff's coming back fast because we have a worldview that's shifted from the one true God into new ageism, new spirituality, paganism is so rife now, it's so thick, and the Bible warns about that happening in the last days and people returning to the false gods of the past, even as Jannes and Jabbers, right, worked under Moses, it says that's going to happen again, or under, against Moses, opposed Moses, under Pharaoh. Right? It's going to happen again in the last days, 2 Timothy chapter 3. But in Isaiah chapter 47, listen to what the Lord says of the worship of this, you know, following the astrologers and those who are associated with Marduk. He, he actually warns the Babylonians. He actually speaks rhetorically to them. And stand fast in your spells and in your many sorceries, sarcastically, really, with which you have labored from your youth. Perhaps it will be able to profit you. Perhaps you will cause trembling. You are worried in your many counsels. Let your, let your astrologers, those who prophesy by the stars, those who predict by the new moons, stand and save you from the, uh, what it will come upon you. Verse 14. Behold, they have become like stubble. Fire burns them. They cannot deliver themselves from the power of the flame. Uh, there is no coal to warm by, nor a fire to sit by. So have those become, the astrologers, those trafficking in witchcraft, so have those become to you with whom you have labored, who have trafficked with you from your youth. Each has wandered in his own way, there is no one to save you. So, so much for Marduk. By the way, uh, there's all kinds of ancient inscriptions of Marduk. And guess what? He's, always, he's often by his, his buddy is a serpent or an oftentimes a dragon, right? And which makes sense. In Genesis 3, Satan is depicted as using a serpent. Revelation 12, 8 through 10, he's depicted as using a serpent. And also uh, the, the, the great dragon, the serpent of old and so forth. So it makes sense. There's a creation. You have to understand, when you put the spiritual warfare with it, it's a blow mind, you know? And I know before I was a Christian and I opened myself up to the demonic world through meditations and through pharmacaea, drugs, I remember, you know, I, only took, I, didn't, I took LSD just a handful of times. But when I did, man, I, I just, I think I was already opened up a lot, man. But I'd sit in Dave, actually laying on Dave Nelson's grass and you guys knew Dave for years. He went here and uh, moved up to Fraser Park and then went beyond the Lord. And, and uh, with our friend Mike Johnson, you know, Steve was smart enough. My friend Steve Riley, you guys know Steve too. Uh, smart enough not to get into a lot of stuff we were getting into at that point, you know. But I remember laying on the grass, man, and just seeing all these dragons, all the clouds just becoming dragons. Now, I'm not a Christian. I'm not fully steeped in the occult at that point. And I'm like, why is everything becoming dragons? It was cool but weird at the same time. There's a spiritual realm, guys. And you'll see the serpent and the dragon worshipped throughout the world or as a symbol of worship. Beginning in Genesis. Amen. Now, there is uh, all the, you know, there's other creation stories too. Not just the story I just gave you. There's Ra of Egypt, right? He's the, the creation god of Egypt. But guess what? He's not the first one on the scene. Ra is birthed by the Nile River. Okay? I mean, think about this, guys. Is that a great parallel to the Bible? No. Because biblically, God is transcendent and different than all these pagan gods. He's the uncreated creator of all things. He creates the water. Read the first few verses of Genesis chapter 1. Amen? And by the way, not just Ra comes forth from the Nile, but remember, Marduk, the chief god of the Babylonians, not the chief god of the Egyptians like Ra, 
He comes from the water too, remember? Tiamat is the water. Amen? But in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Boom, and he started by creating the water and the face of the deep. And then he creates his canvas, and from this canvas, he creates, uh, you know, the world that we, the physical world that we live in. Are you still with me? Now, Gurid, uh, John Gurid, in his book, Against the Gods, uh, he writes about huge differences between the creation accounts, the differences in the God of creation and, and the God of the pagans, and the polemical approach of the first few chapters of Genesis. And he writes this, and I think this is worth quoting. Uh, the creation account of Genesis, in contrast to the pagan accounts, presents God as all-powerful, incomparable, and sovereign. He owes nothing to the agency of another. In addition, creation did not occur as a result of a contest or a struggle between gods, as it did in the Mesopotamian myth. Okay, so this is just, I think, I think that's a, a very, very important point. Now, what about the flood accounts? As I mentioned, I don't, when I hear that there's different flood accounts, I'm like, and there's and the similarities to the Bible, I'm like, oh, I'm not like, oh, no, the Bible might have borrowed from one of those flood accounts. I'm like, praise God that they got some things right, amen? Praise God. To me, that's a witness, like, wow, you know? Uh, there's, there's similarities, meaning that there was a consciousness and awareness that there was a global flood, amen? You know? So it's interesting, though, uh, when you look at uh, the Sumerians, the Egyptians, the ancient Babylonians, the, the Assyrians, they all, and many, 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 many more had uh, flood accounts. Uh, now, but it's interesting, like I mentioned, uh, there were probably oral tradition of the flood account that came down uh, from, you know, Noah and then through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That was probably far more accurate. We don't know exactly what that would have sounded like, but we do know what Moses received on Mount Sinai. Okay, and... Uh, so there was probably a lot of accuracy in, in, but what we go by is what God revealed to Moses on Mount Sinai, which would be uh, perfectly accurate. But there is uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh. You hear this a lot. You know, if you're talking to pagans online, you know, or whatever, they'll try to, oh, the Epic, epic of Gilgamesh, that was a flood story, you know? Yeah, it's a flood, and it's, it has some parallels to the Bible. Yeah, it does, because there was a flood, you know? But there's some big differences, because in the Epic of Gilgamesh, you have... Uh, Atahasa, uh, the, uh, what's it? it's called the uh, Atahasa account, and there's a divine warning of a coming flood that there, there's the, the command to build a ship and bring animals on the ship and so forth, but uh, it's far different than the biblical account in many ways. Uh, now, there's the differences in that account is there's polytheism, again, many gods, there's magic, right? Uh, and so forth. So, uh, and there's the huge difference too is that God is personal and has personal relationships with people. And he's a covenantal God. Remember, he makes a covenant with Noah after he gets off the ark, right? And he's a covenantal God. And you don't see that with all these pagan deities. What about not just the flood accounts, not just the creation account, but what about the uh, Exodus? The Exodus and... If you guys were here a few months ago, many of you were, and many of you that are watching on, online and so forth, I went through each of the 10 gods, or I should say the 10 plagues that were targeting different Egyptian gods. I'm not going to go through all 10 because this, that was more focused on Egypt, but I'll focus on Egypt just a little bit, and we'll talk about things I didn't talk about in that message, so it's not uh, a repeat, so hopefully we learn uh, some, some new things a little bit, but uh, so there's, you know... 
within just the way God uses language. When I talk about polemical, you know what you see throughout Egyptian writings? Thus saith Pharaoh. Thus saith Pharaoh. Thus saith Pharaoh. In, 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 in writings that predate the Bibles, the, you know, Moses wrote 3,500 years ago, right? Even prior to that, thus saith this God. Thus saith that God. Thus saith this God. It's interesting language. Guess what the God of the Bible does through Moses? Thus saith Yahweh. Thus saith Yahweh. Thus saith Yahweh. And that's in the prelude and throughout where he's saying, I'm the one true God. So he uses the language, right? And it's related in the Semitic language, uh, the words, which is quite fascinating. And for instance, here's an example in Exodus chapter 5, verse 1. Moses tells Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, let my people go. Verse 10, thus says Pharaoh, a few verses later, thus says Pharaoh, I am not going to uh, give you any straw, right? And the battle lines are being drawn. Who's the true God here, right? Keep in mind, Pharaoh was a God, okay? He was, he was supposed to be the ultimate God in the sense that he was the personification of Ra or Ra Horus, different names for the same God and at the same time depending on what kind of Egyptian or Egyptian, Egyptian history you're reading about, uh, uh, they're at times different gods, very different gods. So even think of what God's doing with the staff. Remember Moses' staff? Remember Aaron's staff? There's a debate whether they were the same staff or not, because sometimes it's, you, you see Moses lifting his staff, and then it says Aaron lifted his staff, and that God had empowered the staff that was in Moses' hand at, at the... At, at the, at the uh, you know, uh, and it could be that he empowered both staffs by both of them. And we read uh, in Exodus chapter 4, if you want to go there, if, please turn if you have time. Exodus, you got your Bible there. Exodus chapter 4, verse 1. Verse 1. Then Moses said, what if they will not believe me? This is when the Lord's appearing to him through the burning bush. What if they don't believe me or listen to what I say? For they may say the Lord has not appeared to you. The Lord has said to him, what is that in your hand? And he said, a staff. Now, why would Moses have a staff in his hand? Because he was a shepherd, amen? Well, guess who else had a staff in his hand? Pharaoh had a staff. Yeah, you just look at the depictions of Pharaoh because he was a shepherd of the sheep, his sheep in Egypt. And God is a shepherd of his sheep. And he's going to use Moses to take them out of Egypt. There's a lot of heavy stuff going on here. Then he said, throw it to the ground. Throw it on the ground. So he, meaning Moses, threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses, uh, Moses fled from it. This is pretty heavy. But the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand and grasp uh, it by its tail. Because <laughs> he's freaked out. He's one of those guys that's afraid of snakes, or it was a very dangerous-looking snake. So he stretched out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. By the way, could God do that? If he can create the universe, everything else is easy, guys, okay? Verse 5, that, the, that they may believe. Now, this is interesting. He wants him to do this, that, verse 5, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. I'm going to show myself known. Now, keep in mind that when you worship false gods and demons, things happen. Do you realize a lot of people are so into worshiping false gods around the world, and they have been since ancient times, because they have some real experiences sometimes. Because demonic entities are very real. And God wants to give his people an opportunity to recognize who the true God is. Right? And go to chapter 4. You're there now, but go to verse 17. You shall take in your, chapter 4, verse 17. You shall take in your hand this staff with which you shall perform signs. Right? 
Then Moses departed and returned to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go, that I may return to my brethren who are in Egypt and see if they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. The Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. Okay. So Moses took his wife and his sons and mounted on a donkey and returned to the land of Egypt. Moses also took what? The staff of God in his hand. By the way, it's called the staff of God. Amen. So if it's Aaron or it's Moses using it, it's going to be able to, God's going to use it. Amen. But then again, then again, it could have been, they both had their own staff. So I don't know for sure. Uh, Moses and Aaron appear before uh, Pharaoh, right? And look what happens in chapter 7. Go to chapter 7 now. Verse 10, chapter 7, verse 10. So Moses and Aaron came to Pharaoh, and thus they did just as the Lord, that's Yahweh in the Hebrew, tetragrammaton, had commanded. And Aaron threw his staff down before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh also called the wise men and the sorcerers, and they also, and the magicians of Egypt, did the same with their secret arts, their magic Verse 12, for each one threw down his staff and they turned into serpents. But Aaron's staff, what? This is heavy. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Verse 13, yet Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. Now it's interesting. This is really interesting. You ever see Pharaoh's crown? What's at the top of his crown? A serpent, a cobra, right? Just like Marduk was associated with a serpent, right? And they praised, they worshipped the different animals and so forth. And the serpent represented his throne, his power. What's the Lord doing through this? Like, why, you ever think, why did the Lord do the staff and the serpent? Because guess what? It's a polemic against the gods of Egypt saying, Mm-mm, you can worship the devil and these demon gods all you want, man. You can have symbols, you can have, you can turn your staffs into snakes, but guess what? I'm going to show you that I can create a serpent that could, in fact, God uses an angel, amen, to bind Satan before he's destroyed after, after, it's not even Jesus. Jesus just say the word and Satan fry, right? But he's saying, hey, I'm more powerful than you and your gods. Are you with me tonight? Yes, sir. So this is polemical. And in Genesis chapter three, Satan comes in the form of a serpent, serpent Okay. And that's, not, that's why it's not an accident that Marduk is pictured with a serpent, the god of the Babylonians, Babylon the Great in the end. That's why it's not an astonishing thing that on Pharaoh's crown is the serpent. I did a lot of research I've never put out yet on all kinds of ancient serpent worship and how it's so used today by feminists and by, uh, you know, New Agers and everybody else. It's just crazy. Now... So it's interesting, they pulled off some tricks, you know. But what's interesting as well, what does Moses' rod do what do, when it becomes a serpent? It does what to the other snakes? It swallows, them up. it swallows them up. Amen. That same Hebrew word, by the way, because those, those serpents represented Pharaoh's power, his crown. And it was saying, Yahweh is on the scene, and he's, he's in charge ultimately. Isn't that heavy? Now, it's also interesting, too, that word swallowed, when they swallowed, is the same way, word that's used after the 10th plague, and God opens up the Red Sea, and the Israelites flee over dry ground, and Pharaoh's army chases them, and what happens to Pharaoh's army? Because Pharaoh has a change of heart. He lets them go. He says, wait a minute. You know, he gets ticked off. Go get them. 
He liked all that free labor, you know. Yeah. And, uh, well, they got swallowed, you're right, Israel, by the sea. Same Hebrew word, by the way, that's used by the serpent swallowing. Yep, and it's, he's, the sea swallowed them up. That was God saying, I just swallow you up, man. I consume you, you know. I'm more powerful than you. And my shepherd, Moses, because he's the good shepherd, he's using Moses to uh, deliver them. Now, by the way, that uh, film, and it doesn't cover a lot of things I'm mentioning here, but it covers a lot of things I'm not mentioning here, and way more in certain ways because it covers more of the timing. It's proven that Exodus, it's called Patterns of Evidence. You want to read that book or send for the, watch the film, okay? It's, it's pretty awesome by Tim Mahoney. Uh, who I'm going to probably call pretty soon. We've been kind of playing a little phone tag, but we both, well, me, I mean, I've been extremely busy, but uh, we'll get him up for an interview pretty soon. Uh, and by the way, that gentleman, Currid, who wrote that book, Against the Gods, he also wrote a book on Israel, ancient Israel and Egypt, where he gets into some of this stuff, you know, and uh, does a great job. Now, keep in mind, uh, they were... All these judgments were against gods. Remember these different gods we talked about? The god Hopi. Remember god Hopi? The god of the Nile. And the Nile was turned into blood. And Hopi was the god of the Nile who would bring the Nile and cause it to grow and, and swell during the months, where the, or the months where the water would come down and, and, and bring the sediments and the nutrients and the minerals to the farmland. But what happened? It turned to blood, right? So the Lord God made Hopi unhoppy, you know? <laughs> And you have this worship going on of Ra, the sun god, right? And what's the plague that happens? Ra's the chief god. It becomes what? Dark for what? Three nights. Right? I mean, three days. It's already dark at night, but three days, you know? I hope it got dark at three, you know? So it got dark for three nights, and guess what? That means, where's Ra? Where's the sun god? He's buried in the underworld now, right? And now it's just interesting, uh, you're having a lot of judgments going on. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 4 through 6, So about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, and there are many so-called gods and lords, yet for us there is one but one God. Okay? So there's one true God. There's many called gods. Satan isn't even called in the Bible the God of this world. Amen? Because he has authority, but he's not a God. There's only, the Bible says there's one God by nature. And the Paul, said, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that the, 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 the things that the Gentiles worship or act, sacrifice to, he says the idols are actually gods. And he calls them, he says they're actually not gods. He says they're actually demons. Okay? There's demon gods. When Paul went into Athens, remember that? To witness in Acts chapter 17, says he was grieved because it was full of idols. And there's all kinds of idolatry going on. Some of the historians and the geographers back in those days talked about there was more idols than there were people in Athens. And it was easier to find an idol to talk to than a, than a human being in Athens. They're so prevalent, you know. And Paul was grieved when he saw all the idols. Yet guess what? He used a polemic. He says, he goes, I see that you are very, well, some of our translations say very religious. 
Some say superstitious. Most say religious or superstitious. But the actual word is daemon worshipers. It's a compound word. Okay? And a daemon could be good or bad. They, they were just different gods. And diff- or they could be, you know, spirit entities or those that were wor- considered worthy of worship. And uh, I think it was uh, Plato claimed he had a, a, a daemon that, that communicated to him and so forth. Uh, and, but Paul says that you, I, I, could, I see that you're, you know, that you're, you're, you're you know, you're very, you're daemon worshipers. And they would be thinking, yeah, that's right, man. And Paul's like, what does Paul think about that? He's grieved. He says that those idols are actually demons. Okay, he knows exactly what he's saying, but he knows they take it differently. He says, but I know you see so you, you have an inscription, and they had this inscription everywhere, to the unknown God. To the unknown God. Because they just didn't want to leave anyone out. Okay, who's the unknown God? The God that they don't know? Yahweh, Yahweh, because if they knew him, they wouldn't worship the other gods, amen? But it's just interesting when you see the polemic of Paul in Acts chapter 17. I see that you're a bunch of demon worshipers is what he's thinking when he says that. He knows they probably won't take it that way because by that time it was a term that meant pretty pretty religious. But Paul goes on to explain what they're actually worshiping and tells them that there's one that's going to uh, come and judge them, the Lord Jesus Christ, amen? And he's the creator of all things. So you have a very similar thing going on. And so it's important that we understand that there is one God, okay? So the difference between, now check this out. There's a difference between the one true God and these pagan gods that you can share with any pagan who says, oh, well, kind of they're all the same, right? And kind of the Bible borrowed and da-da-da. No, no, it didn't. It set the record straight. That's what it did, you know? Uh, is the number one point is that our God is what? One. Amen. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one God. Amen. The great Shema of Israel. You have another God before me. Exodus chapter 20. Isaiah over and over again. Right? Uh, so, that's, so I'm going to make some points. And a couple I already made, but I'm just going to make them as bullet points pretty much now. And the other ones are new points. Uh, magic. Their paganism was many gods, but also is filled with what? Magic. Right? God's word forbids magic. Amen? So I'm not going to spend time on that. We talked about that. Do you want to learn tonight? Yes, sir. Okay. Uh, Deuteronomy 9, 18, 9 through 12. You can write that down on magic. Uh, this is a big one I didn't mention. Biblical history versus pagan history. You know, the pagan history was just all cyclical. Just everything just kept repeating itself. And there was no real beginning, beginning. So it wasn't like there was a, this, you know, and, and there wasn't a purpose that the gods had with a, 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 an incredible ending where in the Ain communities, you know. It was their, their purposes were basically survival, you know, where God has this incredible plan set up, right? And he has a definite beginning, and he's transcendent. He's above his creation. He's not part of his creation. Amen. Remember, just think of Ra. Ra comes out of the creation, right? Just think of Marduk, the Babylonian god. He comes out of the creation, right? So their gods were basically wind, earth, wind, and fire, you know? the different things associated, the different powers, the different forces in nature, because they were just part of nature. They didn't have a concept of God that he's the uncreated creator of all things, out time of the space-time continuum, amen? And they had a, this cyclical thing where just everything is just in this big spin cycle where God's history is linear, amen? Has a beginning and has an end. Totally different, totally different cosmology then. Isn't that interesting? 
You, you would think, well, wait a minute. Yeah, you know, Moses came out of Egypt. Yeah, it's so strange because he has so many different... What, and guess what? Acts chapter 7, he was educated in the knowledge of the Egyptians. He, he knew, and by the way, some will say, well, were they actually even in, were they actually enslaved in Exodus? Were they actually enslaved, you know? Were the Jews really there? Did they really come out and form a nation? And I mean, how does that happen, by the way, unless you have God? But many scholars acknowledge the writing of Exodus, when it was written, that person knows Egypt, like the back of their hand, the language that's used how it's described, not just in generalities, but specifics that are, the theology of Egypt with their different gods, you know, the interplay with Yahweh and those gods. It's because it's Moses and it's the Holy Spirit using Moses. Again, I refer you to patterns of evidence when it comes to showing, you'll be blown away. Okay, we need to probably show that here, you know, but I'm definitely going to, Jeff has been trying to get me to interview him and I I would love to in in the future. It's, It's fascinating though. I have, I have his book as well. It's really good. He's a filmmaker, but he, he wrote a book on it and interviewed some guys. It's really cool. And by the way, the distinctions, and he doesn't get in all these different distinctions, but a great book to get into the distinctions between the one true God of creation and all these pagan gods and how they're so different is a Wesleyan uh, professor named John Oswald. Okay? He's, he's and, I, and you know what got me thinking about this is we have an interview coming up, I think, this week, and Chad may have actually done it today. I think that's this week. Was it with John Oswald? Praise God, it was today, and that'll air when? Probably Friday? Yeah, maybe Friday. Just look for it in the interview with John Oswald. He's great. Uh, and he, did a, uh, he wrote a book called The Bible Among the Myths. The Bible Among the Myths. In fact, and he shows how the Bible is a totally different story than all the myths all in all the Ain community around the Bible. And it's interesting. You go into these different Temples in the Ain communities, ancient Near Eastern communities, guess what you see all around? All these grotesque demon gods, you know, just, just all these weird things. And, you know, it's like you still see in pictures of this day and, and, and of, of different idols. Sometimes they look good. Sometimes they look evil. You, guess what? You go into Israel's, uh, the temple in Israel, the tabernacle, and then later the temple, would you see images of gods no. to bow down and worship? You wouldn't see one. It was forbidden by God. That's not who I am. Are you seeing the contrast, you guys? These are things you can use when you're witnessing to somebody. And it's it's only explained by divine revelation because obviously Moses didn't take that from Egypt, amen? You know what else he didn't take from Egypt? Their medical practices. I did a whole message too many years ago, probably 25 years ago, and I need to do it again, and I do it in more depth probably, where I went into biblical pre-science, biomedical pre-science, where the God of the Bible says to stay away from, don't touch dead animals. Don't touch dead people. Like, don't touch people who, when there's a pot that somebody's been eating from and then they die, don't touch that pot. Take it out and break it. Now, they didn't understand why God was giving them these rules, but now we understand, right? You can communicate disease. And then you know what he says? If the, if, if the pottery is not porous, it doesn't have a lot of holes that would absorb germs, he says, let it in the sun for so many days. If it's porous, though, take it out and break it and bury it. What in the world is going on there? You know, that's heavy, right? It, you're allowed to eat certain foods, but certain creatures, he says, whether they're marine creatures, whether they're uh, birds, or whether they're uh, creeping things or animals that walk along the earth, he specified certain animals, the specific ones, whether it was the type of fish to eat, whether it was the type of animals to eat, or the type of birds you can eat. The, bird, the animals that carried the diseases were off the list. The, the sea creatures, that, you know, 
Back then, you could get typhoid. You get a lot of things. You can get uh, uh, different things, trichinosis and stuff from pigs and who would wallow in their own feces and stuff. You weren't allowed to eat certain things. But everybody else was eating them. But God said, don't. And did, did the Israelis, were they just super smart about it? No, God said, don't. And they were kind of frustrated sometimes, probably. Why can't we eat all these, these yummy crawdads and, and crabs and, and, and lobster, you know? And, and can't, why can't we eat dogs and, 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 and pigs and, and all these animals with a lot of the fur and stuff? Well, it just so happens that the rodents you weren't allowed to eat. The pagans ate the rodents. But you were allowed to eat rodents, but rodents carry diseases. And, well, you were allowed to eat certain birds. You could eat a turkey, you could eat a chicken, but you guess what you can't eat? You can't eat the birds of prey who catch the rodents and get their diseases. It's just so profound. I wish I had time to get into it. In fact, I just wrote two words, you know, biomedical pre-science. And I just thought I'd hit that real fast. I've already hit it too long. But it's a blow mine. And we'll get into a whole message on that. But guess what? Did Moses get that from Egypt? No, in Egypt, you know, you got a sore on your hand. You put some feces in it. And rub, rub some crushed donkey teeth in it. It'll help you out. No kidding. They're, they're, that was, they got a book on how to, you know, you don't see anything like that in the Bible, you guys. Because this is divinely inspired by God. Amen. What an awesome God we have. And the Bible, you know, uh, so the myths, when you read biblical narrative, and it's a trip, and you go through the Bible and you give this narrative, you get dates and times and who was king of this time and so forth, and it just has this ring of truth to it. It's, it's history. When you read the pagan stories, it's just they're all over the place. They're nebulous. They're, they're hyper-spiritual. They're ghostly. There's weird things, like the Gnostic writings. You know when you're reading the Gnostic writings, which you know it's ridiculous and it's, it's made up because it's just a, 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 you know, a 200-foot Jesus or whatever and just all this weirdness, you know? And the biblical writings, there's narrative. It's history. When you read a lot of the ancient deals, when, whether it's Egypt or other places, guess what? When you read about their kings, you never have a bad king. Yeah, they're just all good, it seems. In, in the ancient narratives, guess what you read in the Bible? Do you read, in fact, when you read uh, Israel, not the southern kingdom, when you read not the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom, it's hard to find a good king. God gives us awards. He gives us reality. Amen. It has the absolute ring of truth, and it is the truth. It's the word of God. And, and the pagan gods, they're all like having sex with each other, stabbing each other in the back, and doing all these different things. Well, guess what the God of the Bible is? First of all, he's not having sex, right? He's spirit. The pagan gods were made in the image of us and of demons. The biblical God, we're made in his image, amen? And there's not all these weird things going on between him and other gods where he's having sexual relations with them. And think of Zeus. I mean, Zeus, Zeus raped a different women. Do you know that? Well, not for real because he's not real. But you know what I'm saying? In the stories of Zeus, he rapes different women, you know? It's just crazy. Uh, it, it, it's amazing. Uh, so, you know, God is moral. He's righteous. He's holy, holy, holy. He's totally set apart from uh, these different gods and this is very, very important to understand. Now, he's transcendent. I mentioned, uh, I'm trying to skip a lot of things. Currid, in his book, uh, Against the Gods, writes, quote, the story of the birth and life of Moses accentuates the reality of a providential God who is separate from the universe but determines the operation of the universe. Yahweh, therefore, is both transcendent and imminent, meaning above all but also near to us. To the contrary, the other ancient, listen to this, to the contrary, the other ancient Near Eastern cosmologies sought to explain the structure and operation of the universe in terms of gods who personified nature. While ancient pagan writers spe speculatively 
searched for elements that ordered the universe internally and called them gods, the Hebrew authors presented the external force who created and continually sustained the cosmos. What a huge difference. Uh, John Oswald, who wrote the book, and this is a book, I'm encouraging you right now, if you're interested in this kind of stuff more, write down John Oswald's name and listen to the interview coming up with Chad with him and write down The Bible Among the Myths. It's one of the best books I ever read. I read it like 15 years ago. And uh, maybe, or so, 10, 15 years ago, I can't remember exactly, but he writes, quote, or no, this isn't something he writes, it's something he just said, I don't know if it's in his book. He says, the gods in short, the gods in short, the pagan gods, are made in the image of humans. They are us, only written large. They are gooder than us, but they are also badder than us. He says, excuse the English. They are kinder than us, but they are also crueler than us. So it's far different than the biblical God, amen? So we have an awesome God who loves us, who made us in his image, who also says over and over again in his word that he proves who he is because he tells the end from the beginning. Tells Abraham, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. You're leaving Mesopotamia. <laughs> They're leaving Ur of the Chaldeans, you know, and you're coming with me, and I'm going to make great, and he did. Did, he, did that happen? Yeah. Oh, they're going to be enslaved for a certain amount of time and Egypt, but they're going to get out of it. Where do you think Israel came from? They have a whole history. Amen? Oh, they're going to be, you're going to go into diaspora and be dispersed because of your disobedience because you're not supposed to do what the nations did. But I've got a promise. I'm going to pull off what I said. I'm going to pull off through the coming Messiah. Did they get dispersed? Yes, they did. Did he bring them back in? It happened more than once. Yeah. And it's the only nation that this happened with. We have all these prophecies. The gospel of Jesus Christ would spread throughout the world. Is it happening? Yes, it is. Christians would be hated by the world. Is it happening? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Would there be a return to Babylonian religion? Is that happening right now? the world would become one again under coming Antichrist. They wouldn't retain the knowledge of the one true God. Chapter 1 of Romans. Therefore God gave them more depraved mind that they should believe a lie who loved the, worshiped the creature more than the creator. So you see, these false gods are creatures. They're either idols that are made with hands. There's humans that they'd worship, ancestors they'd worship. There's demons they're worshiping, and they just make stories about them anything but the true God. And Revelation, or 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 says those who refuse to love the truth will be given to, over to a lie. God will send them a strong delusion that they should believe the lie. And they'll worship the Antichrist, the man. That's where the world's headed right now. And right now, paganism, there's a huge... And that's exa- what, I, what, I, what I saw as a new Christian, I'm seeing more and more all the time. I'm like, yeah, I just see all these things fitting together. But one thing I... Wow, there's going to be a resurgence of occultism in the last days, terrible times will come. And a lot of things it says will happen there, but it says there will be people that stand against the truth, oppose the truth, even as Janice and Jambres opposed Moses. That was going to happen all over again. Here we are. And now you have, by the way, did you know in popular music, Egyptian gods are really popular again? DC has a really big movie coming out with the Shazam version, but the Egyptian version of Shazam, who calls upon the different Egyptian gods that's coming out in next year actually uh, this is the battle of the gods today and in the end during the book of revelation during the tribulation period the antichrist will declare himself to be god and people say who can make war with him as though all the world will worship him saying who can make war with him well that's what they thought about pharaoh right and god's going to bring a series of judgments judging the false gods of this world system that we live in don't worship them amen and he's ultimately going to defeat the Antichrist. Amen? And he's going to defeat Satan. 
And in some large way, what happened in the Exodus will repeat itself, but on a global scale. Pharaoh's a picture of Antichrist. The, sa- the lambs that were sacrificed to escape judgment is a picture of the Lamb of God, Jesus. Amen. It's so layered. The whole Bible is layered. Amen. And with so many different beautiful truths, whether it's typological, whether it's historical, whether it's prophetic, whether it has to do with spiritual warfare. Uh, it's important that we... Do you understand? Now, if some pagan comes to you the next day or some Wiccan, some liberal, some zeitgeist guy and says, oh, the Bible borrowed it and it's pretty much all the same. Is that true? Is it even close to true? No. Man, praise God that you have a unique book. Amen. As Oswald, Oswald said, the Bible among the myths. Amen. And praise God. This God is against the false gods. Amen. Courage. Amen. And praise God, we can discern patterns of evidence in the Exodus that show us when it was written and what it's really about. Okay, Mahoney. So different books I've suggested, and uh, two by Currid there. But you guys, but no, praise God, we have a unique book, amen? But praise God even more that it's a reflection of who he is, that we have the unique, one, true, almighty, transcendent, all-loving, good God, amen? amen. But he's a good God, but he's also a warrior and he's against the false gods. And that's why when you read this book, it's polemical. And even, the, even not just when you get to the prophets, but when you get to Genesis, when you're reading Genesis, when you're reading Exodus, it's written in the way it is to show that he's the one true God. Are you with me tonight? Yes. So when you read it, understand like God is showing you who he is in the midst of a bunch of lies because we're not in heaven yet. So he wants to understand we live in a place of darkness and he wants to under, you to understand that he's the one true God. And Jesus said, this is eternal life that they might know thee the only true God, speaking of the Father. And he said, in Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. That's eternal life. Do you know the Father? Do you know Jesus? Jesus said, nobody can come to the Father. Or nobody can come to me, he said, unless the Father draws him. Amen. Thankfully, Jesus said in John chapter 12, 32, that the Son of Man be lifted up, he'll draw who? All men to himself. How does he draw all men? He convicts them by the Holy Spirit. Amen. The Spirit and the bride say, come. Amen. He lets us know that we need him. We have the power of the gospel. The power, the Bible, Paul says, not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it's the power of God and salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Greek. You have the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God revealed himself uh, through the power of the gospel and what he did for you, and his spirit draws you. The question isn't whether God will draw you or not, because the Holy Spirit convicts the whole world of sin. The question is whether you'll come to the one true God. Because it's easy to worship the pagan gods because you kind of do what you want. They're made in your image. The one true God says you gotta, that he's holy, and you have to be forgiven of your sins. And the biblical God is so different than all these false gods because guess what? You know what's different between Christianity and all the other religions out there? They're all based on, in one way or another, virtually working your way to heaven, climbing a stairway to heaven, keeping an eightfold path, keeping this, doing that, and earning your salvation. The difference is the Christian faith, God so loved the world, amen? He condescended and became a man and died in our place, and paid for our sins. What makes his different, the big difference is he offers real, genuine forgiveness that only we, we can only have through him and through the forgiveness that he offers and the sacrifice that he gave. I'm glad we have the one true God, and I'm glad the one true God isn't some weird fanged God with flames, you know, coming out of his ears, right, and all berserk, you know, but that he's a stable God. The pagan gods were very unstable, okay? He's a stable God who says he's faithful and he's true, Amen. He's light, and in him there's no darkness at all. He's pure, he's good, he's righteous. Read the word. Get to know your, your God better, amen? 
and fall in love with him and, and realize he's good, he's loving, but he's also powerful. And all the things we see in the world, you need to understand this book and look at things through the lenses of God's word that he's revealed to you. And you'll be thoroughly blessed and you'll have a huge anchor in God's word and in Christ. Amen. Let's bow our hearts before him. Father God, we thank you.